I was uh, joking with Bill prior to services, and I said, well, you have a sermonette, and then Daryl will have a sermonette, and then I can give another sermonette. <laughs> but I think what Daryl said and what Bill said will go along with what I have for a sermon, because I think it's, it is important. And, and as we do go toward the Sabbath, I mean to, to Passover, even the sermon I have, I've been working on for probably a month or so before the last two sermons, and you'll probably find that there's some things here that we were covering in the last sermons, but it's not because I'm following them, it's because I'm following them, and it's in, in the scriptures, you know, it's one of those things. You know, the saying of our country is, one nation under God, undivided, with liberty and justice for all. Is that it? I mean, is that where you are today? Are we one nation under God? Well, we claim we're under God. Well, we are. In reality, we are. We're one nation under the God of oil. Or maybe the God of money, or the God of power, or the God of, uh, I'm in charge, and you're going to follow me. But are we under the nation of God? Look at Israel. The nation of Israel. Back in the first Exodus, what happened? It became one nation under God, wasn't it? God took a nation under his power and brought them out of Egypt. And they literally could have said, hey, we are one nation under God. Of course, that only lasted, what, a couple of days, six, seven days, and they were at the uh, base of the Red Sea. Nothing but water in front, mountains on right and left, and an army behind them. And uh, their thoughts were, are we really one nation under God? Let's go back to the other God. <laughs> and God showed his power again and walked them through. And again, they could say, we're one nation under God. So God took them for a while. He gave them his laws. He gave them directions, showed them the Sabbath, fed them, took care of them, took them up into a country. They took 12 of their people, led them up in the country, said, this is what I'm going to give you, because you're a nation under God. What happened? Well, they came back divided and unified. Ten were unified under, let's go back to Egypt. You know, God can't take care of us. Two came back and said, but God is our God. We should be under God. So they became divided right away, didn't they? Not a nation under God any longer. They were divided. They were fearful. This happened all through society, and God's allowed them to fall apart. Take this nation, the United States. World War II, or one weather came along, and we were doing our own thing. We pulled together, didn't we? World War II, we pulled together. But it wasn't too long that we're sitting today where we're not a nation under God. We're a nation that's divided. We've got uh, two or three or four different factions in the government. And basically, they're trying to destroy us. They want us to be two groups of people. The very rich ruling and those that labor and take care of the very rich in the world. They want to dump 
all but 500 million people. Of course, God's going to do one a little better than you. He's going to show them who's in power. You know, it's nothing new. I can remember back in the 60s, I think, the Church of God was one nation under God. Worldwide Church of God, underneath of God, with one ruler. One person that God put in charge. And what happened? The God of money, the God of power, the God of this world took charge. We no longer became one God-fearing church underneath God. We became a group of people scattered everywhere. We find in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, God talks about that. He says in 16, So then, because you are lukewarm... We didn't have the spirit-fired power in us to keep going like we were. So we were lukewarm. And God said, I want you to be hot or cold or cold or hot. Because we're not, he said, I spewed you out of my mind. He vomited the church up. That's God's intention. Because we were one nation under him. We turned our back on him. And he spewed us out of his mouth. What God did. Because we were lukewarm. I ask you today, is the church, are you, me, our little group, the church of God worldwide, are we unified? Are we under God today? Can't be. We war and fighting ourselves, don't we? Isn't that what's happening in the church today? One guy gets up and says, I'm the only one that's in charge. Well, I'm the only church of God. You know. If you don't follow me, you're going into the tribulation and finally in the lake of fire. Another man from another organization says, no, I'm the one that's the one that's in charge. I'm the oldest guy around. I ought to be the one that's leader. And the rest of you are, are just going to either go to the lake of fire or tribulation because you're not with me. That's not what God said, was it? He said he spewed the church out everywhere. He was upset about it. What is unity? A definition for unity is oneness. Is the church at oneness? Are we, you and I, our little group, at one? Are we really at one? As Daryl brought out that first little group at Pentecost in Acts was at one and they seen many miracles. And that was just a small foretaste of what's going to come. Are we at that kind of oneness? It goes on. Harmony. Are we in harmony? These things to think about as we go toward the Passover. In agreement. Do we agree? Or do we disagree? Are we happy to disagree? Are we agreeing to disagree? Something to think about. The church, the definition goes on, the church is a fellowship of faith. So, we're to be a fellowship, we're supposed to fellowship one with another in faith, in hope, in love that binds together the believers. 
That's what unity is. It is faith, hope, and love. Those are very important things. That's what brings on unity. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. God expects unity. Our nation is not unified. Not when we have people, we're told, like my wife was pointing out, border guards that are given a job and then given greater sentences for doing their job, prison sentences, than someone that commits murder. Is that unity? Is it unity to take our babies, our young boys and girls, and send them over to another country to die for oil? It's not for this country. It's for the rich and the mighty that are oil magnets or drug lords that they're put over and killed. So that's not unity. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So here Paul is saying to us in the church of God, we better start walking worthy of this calling that he's given to us. That means we're going to have to do something more than just play church or play like we're in unity. With all lowliness, he says, lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Is that how we're supposed to deal with each other? Once we learn to do this in our own little group, then we can branch out and God can use us to help others. But we've got to be able to, and I'm not just talking to the people here for you on a talking line, for the people sitting here. This is to the church worldwide. This is to every group, to every one of us. No matter where we are, we have to learn to walk in lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring, verse 3, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring, really putting out some kind of effort. Isn't that what it says in Romans 12? We're to become a living sacrifice. That means you've got to put out some kind of effort more than just play like it. God's already spewed the church out. He's already said, you think you're high and mighty and great, but you're too self-centered. He goes on in verse 4. There's one body. So I have somebody call me up and says, how many churches of God are there? Well, there's only one. The Bible says so right here. Ephesians 4, verse 4. There's one body. But right now, it's not unified. That body is not in unity. There's one body and one spirit. Even as you are called in one hope of your calling. So there's only one hope. One body. It's just that we don't look at it that way, do we? We don't act that way. One Lord. We don't have a bunch of lords, do we? Lords and masters. We only have one. One faith and one baptism. One God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. 
God is in all of us. He's put his spirit in us, just like he did the apostles. You have as much of God's spirit as the apostles have. You have as much spirit as Isaiah or any of those that God has called. He's given you the same amount of spirit. How do we deal with that spirit? That spirit is to bring us to unity. Like Acts, those people had the same spirit that you do. Had just as much as you have, but they were in one place with one mind and one attitude and what happened? Miracles began to occur. Yes, God was showing, I'm working at this room. I'm working with these people. 120. That's where God was working. You know, I'd like to see that said about us. I really would. That we have one spirit in unity and God is working here. But if it's not, I look for the place that God is using that to that unity. That we can all be a part of that. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of God. We have grace that God's given to us. It's his decision. He gives to each one of us what he thinks we need for his purpose. To better his people, to better his plan, to finally bring glory and honor to him. Verse 8, wherefore he said... When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Well, what was that, what was that captivity that Christ it took with him? Do you, know, you know what that is? That captivity was death caused by sin. The captivity of sin and death. He took that away for us. We'll come back here, but I'm going to go right, go to... 2 Corinthians 6, 14. We'll come back to 4, Ephesians 4. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. It says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? That's part of that captivity. He says, Don't be, any, don't be unequally yoked with this world. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And what communion or fellowship have you have uh, has light with darkness? What? Why do we want to take and share what God has given to us with the world? And what accord has Christ with Baal? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? So here we are. We want to share our lives with the world. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And we've heard that many times. What kind of idols do we have? There's a lot of idols in our life, isn't there? We have a lot of idols, and yet God says, what are you going to share the temple? And your body is the temple of God's spirit. So what are you going to share with an idol? And that something more to say about that later and point out how important it is that your temple, your body is not shared with idols or idolatry. Um, as God said, I dwell in them 
Listen, God says, I'm dwelling in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they will be my people. If we are dwelling with God, if we become a nation under God, unified with God, he said he'd dwell in us. He'll live with us. And that's what we want. Therefore, come out from among them. You know what Revelation tells us again, 18.4? Come out of Babylon? If you don't, in Revelation 18 says, if you stay with Babylon, if you stay tied, like Daryl said, we've got our ducking cord still tied to this world, to Babylon, you're going to take and suffer the same problems that they suffer. He said, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Isn't that what we want to be? We want to be with God. Basically, the unity that we want to have is the unity with God and with Christ. We want to have that same unity. But, you know, it's hard to unify yourself with Christ and with the Father if we can't be unified to each other. That becomes a problem. And I will be your father, be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty. And that's something fantastic to look forward to. God say to you, you're my son, you're my daughter. I want to be with you. Do you want to be with me? Back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 now. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. Because he wants us to be unified, here in 4.11 it says that he gave some. Wait, who gave some? Herbert Armstrong? Merrill Henson? No. He was Christ. He gave some apostles. So he appointed apostles. Christ appointed these people. So he gave some apostles. He gave some prophets. And we have prophets written in the scriptures. Christ gave those people. And had a purpose in it. He gave some evangelists who go out and evangelize and bring people together. And he gave some pastors or shepherds and some teachers. But it is God that went out there and appointed different people. All through history, you can see that very same thing, that God appointed different individuals. God appointed Moses. God appointed Joel. God appointed Herbert Armstrong. God appointed Peter, James, and John. They didn't choose these jobs for themselves. So he said he gave them. He did that. And notice verse 12. Because this is what he did it for. For the perfection or perfecting of the saints. He is doing this because he wants people to become perfected. So he gave, he set them up. He made David king. Back when Israel came out of Egypt and finally they gave him a country, he appointed rulers. These were, uh, Governors who led the people in the right way. So one of them would die, he'd go backward 
You raise another one up, they go toward dying, and keep dying, they go backward. There's a shift back and forth, back and forth. Unity, disunity, unity, disunity, all through history. Finally came along Samuel. Samuel was a leader. Samuel was trying to help them go God's way. And they came up and said, we don't want God to be ruled. No, they said, we want a king. We want to be like the rest of the people. We want to look like the world. We want a king. And Samuel says, what did I do? And God says, it's not you, Samuel, wasn't it? You know what he said? It's not you. They don't want me to rule them. That's the problem. But that's the problem with the nation and the problem that happened in the church. We come up and said, we just don't want God to rule. And so today we ask other people to come and rule over us, don't we? We don't want who God appoints. But God does it, he said here, for the perfecting of the saints. That's why he, he appointed different people and he gives them the understanding to perfect God's saints. That was the purpose. For the work of the ministry. To help and serve the people. To help them to grow. For the edifying of the body of Christ. So he gives knowledge to a few people that they can pass on the knowledge. Have we not been shown new things? No, they're not new things. It's just a deeper understanding. Just a deeper understanding. So we take the scripture that says uh, iron sharpens iron and we go up in our own thoughts and our own actions and say that's iron no iron sharpen iron is when you're in the same book same page but you have you don't quite understand it really and since you're unified and on the same book same page then yes you sharpen each other because you help each other become more toward a godlike person so God points different people to do that, to edify the body. And for this purpose, verse 13, until we all, till we all, the church of God, all over, till we all come to the unity of the faith. One faith, remember. One body, one faith, one hope, one calling, one baptism, that's what it's there for. One faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect human being, a perfect man, a perfect woman, a son and daughter that God could say, well done, my sons and daughters. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the purpose that God appoints people is he wants children. And he wants a life for Christ, for the Son, the father, our husband. And so he appoints it. And that is unity when we have a leader. I think back with Herbert Armstrong, we were basically, at least in the 60s, we were unified. We were going in the same direction. We were striving to be a son and daughter. Until 
or iron sharpening iron it wasn't iron sharpening iron, but it was causing discord, wasn't it? And yet today we would think we had learned. God says in Revelation, remember, He kicked us out. He vomited up the church because we had so many people with so many ideas and so many winds of doctrine that God just spit us out. And yet today it seems that we would have learned the lesson, but we haven't. Because today I see so many people wanting to be teachers. I've met a lot of them. Appointed himself to be the head or the teacher. And that's not what God wanted. In James chapter 3 verse 1 says, My brethren, be not many masters. And yet we all go out and try to be some way or another, be the leader. And I know better than what God does. That's why um, I can go and help other people become closer to God. Well, that's not true. God said he appointed people. Not myself. Not me. I don't get that choice. And I don't know very many people that are true servants of God that have gone out and tried to become the one that teaches people. I've heard that there are people that say, well, I'm training the two witnesses. But every place I read in the scripture, I see every one of those people that God appointed were humble people. Somewhere down the line, they were humble, meek people. Remember uh, Moses, uh, Nathan, Korah, and Abiram came up there. Of course, Korah was a Levite. And he said, hey, you know, I'm as good as Aaron. I ought to be the high priest. See, I'm pointing myself the high priest. Dathan and Byron said, we're the firstborn. How come you're the leader? I ought to be the leader. You know, we are the firstborn. You're not. You're, you're a, the tribe of Levi. You're not the firstborn. Was Moses humble and meek? Or he jumped up in their face and say, you get out of here, you know, I'm the leader. Now, what did Moses do? He raised his clothes, fell on the ground and said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand. That's a meek person who gets on his knees and cries out to the living God to forgive them. Not stand up and say, hey, I'm the great guy. No. Moses fell on his ground. And what was bad, what happened? Tens of thousands of people died? Is that what happened in worldwide? Can't we look back at what happened in our own lifetime? Did we not have thousands on this side, thousands on this side dying, spiritually dying, because someone thought he was better than God, that he could be the one in charge? What is meekness? So it says here in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. What happened to those people that thought they'd take over? God showed, you're wrong. And they received a terrible plague put them down. For in many things we often offend, goes on, going back to the last two sermons on how deep was the blood on the cross. 
at the place of the cross. Our tongues brought and bring in much destruction. It's not, we often offend in all. If any man offend not in words, that's why you've got to be careful to be a teacher because you can offend people with the words you say. And some is, in, is a, a man that does it is a perfect man, able to bridle or control his whole body. I've seen people that can pretty well take care of it. I have a difficulty, I know. It's hard to control your mouth, hard to control your thoughts, and sometimes you jump in there. I remember telling Charles the other day, more than once, I could have lost the strike when I was an airman first class in the service because I couldn't bridle my tongue. Luckily, the guy overlooked it. But it's easy. You have to be very careful. So you don't want to be the teacher. What if you taught somebody the wrong thing? What if you led them down the wrong path? And they died spiritually. God is going to come to you and say, Why? Why are you going to say, Well, 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 um, because I don't think the guy that was the pastor was doing the kind of job I think. I could have done a better job. Is that what we're going to say? I mean, can we make that kind of excuse to God? We take the scripture, 2 Timothy 2.15, and, and we don't really think on it in the intent that it should be. It says, study to show yourself. To show yourself approved. But we take it, study to show, your, to show others approved unto God. No, we don't, do, we don't say that, we don't think that, but when we go out and try to teach other people things that maybe not God doesn't want. You know, he doesn't always bring everything out at every moment of time. We know that, we go back to Daniel. And Daniel was told, shut the book up, it's not for you to know it this time. But we have to be knowing, we've got to know everything, and if, if I don't understand it completely, I'm to study to show other people the right way. You know, it says to study to show yourself. You, yourself, on your knees in front of God, reading the scriptures to show yourself approved God. He wants to know, are you going to follow me? A workman that needs not be ashamed. Well, if you read somebody the wrong way, you're going to be ashamed somewhere down the line. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the importance of studying. That's not sharpening iron. That's sharpening yourself with God. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen says all Scripture was given by the inspiration of God, and yet people will pick and choose and say that's good, but that's a little bit difficult, so I won't use that. But it says all Scripture, everything that's in this book. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Those people that recorded, I think it's in Second Peter, it says these people that recorded this information were holy men inspired by God to write this word. So it says all scripture is given by inspiration. Holy men were inspired to put these things down. Holy men were teaching God's word. And it's profitable for doctrine, 
the way to live. For reproof, proving the right way, you know, showing yourself approved of God. For correction, when you go the wrong direction, you know, God does thank us. And he uses the scriptures to do it. For correction, for instruction in righteousness. But he chooses the person he wants to put that through. That the man of God, you and me, and everyone that becomes a man or a human being, a man or woman of God, the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished unto good works. That's what it is. It's developing good works. That's what we're supposed to be, isn't it? Again, in Second Peter chapter 1, it tells us no prophecy of the Scripture is given by any private interpretation. I kind of related that a little bit before that. That's Second Peter 1, 19 and 20. No part of the Scripture is given for private interpretation. So if we get this like, man, I got this. The fantastic idea. Is that your private interpretation? God said he gives it through those that he chooses and opens it on his time schedule. Not on our time schedule. Sometimes we think, well, it should be brought out right now. Well, maybe not. Maybe that's not what God wants at this moment in time. He wants it done in his time schedule. Note, Hebrews chapter 13. Commands from God. Because sometimes we don't always want to listen to who God put in charge. Just like Korah, Dathan, and Byron. We don't want to listen. But God says to obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls. They have the responsibility to see that you go the right direction. And if they don't fulfill their job, is it your job to correct them and put them down? No. It's God's job. Too often we take God out of the picture and want to correct God's people without His authority. They're responsible for your souls as they must give account Oh, so I mean, if I teach the wrong thing, Daryl teaches the wrong thing, Gordon teaches the wrong thing, Bill or Terry, we got to give an account to God for what we said. Because we've got to give an account that we may do it with joy. You know, we're happy because you're going toward unity. And that's joyous. So we do it with joy and not with grief. For it is unprofitable for you. It's unprofitable for you if we lead you in the wrong direction. The church was unprofitable when they went the wrong direction as people died spiritually. It's a sad state of affairs. How how does God and Christ live? You ever think about that? God and Christ are one. One what? One being? No. 
They're two different individuals, two different beings, but they're unified. They're at one with the way they live their life. Turn over to John chapter 5. God the Father and Christ are one. John chapter 5, verse 43. Christ speaking says, I am come in my Father's name. Christ said, I come in God's name. And you receive me not. If I, uh, if another comes in his own name, you receive him. Christ said, I come in God's name. But you don't receive me. I don't come in my name. I don't come because I'm important. People do that. They come in their own name. But that's not the way God and Christ do things. Christ said, I come in the Father's name. I come because he sent me. Chapter 7. Verse 28. Chapter 7. Verse 28. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me and know uh, whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. So here Christ said, He's not taking glory and special things on himself. He's relating that he came here to this earth as a human being because God sent him. And he did it willingly. Because they are unified. They think the same way. They want the same reactions. Chapter 12. Verse 49 says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say, and what I should speak. Christ said, it's not me. I do the things that the Father wants me to do. Because I am the Father. We're unified. So how come we can go out there and take upon ourselves to teach other people something that, well, God's given me some special understanding. We see it happening in the church all the time. But Christ always gave the glory back to God. Always said, it's not me, it's God. Chapter 17, here Christ praying to the Father. A few hours before he died, praying to the Father. He says, chapter 17, verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which you gave me. See, Christ's not taking the glory on himself. He says, I'm only giving them the words that you gave me. And they have received them because you sent me. And they have received them. 
and have known surely that I came out from you and they believe that you did send me. So here are the twelve disciples, the apostles, who he spent time with for three and a half years, understood that it was God that was in charge. And what Christ did was he was unified with God. Verse 25. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. Christ and the Father were unified. They did things together. They believed the same things. They were willing to go all the way. Galatians 4. Galatians chapter 4. Christ and the God, and God the Father are one. They're unifying. Galatians 4.4 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of a son. So Christ willingly followed God because they agreed that this is what needs to be done. Christ and the Father are one. Let's go to one more here. John, 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 9. In this, 1 John 4, 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son to the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the perpetuation for our sins. God loved us enough to allow the Word, you know, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. These two beings, unified, had a plan, knew what they were going to do. And Christ, who became, or God, the Word that became Christ, God said. And it is interesting to me in John Chapter 17, verse 17 says, what is truth? God's Word is truth. What's God's Word? Christ. They were unified. Christ always followed the Father's commands. Not that he wanted to be his own person, but he followed the own God's plan. John chapter 5, verse 9 says, John 5, 19. Then answered Jesus, said unto him, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. Christ said, look, I can't do anything of myself. But what I see the Father do for what things soever he does, these also does the Son likewise. They're unifying. God and Christ are unifying. That's what they expect from humanity. Verse 30 of John 5. 
I can of myself do nothing, he said again. I can't do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. When we make a judgment, how do we do? Do we do our own judgment, or do we do godly judgment? Christ said, I myself can do it. Can it do it? Again in chapter 8, verse 29, 28 and 29. Chapter 8, 28 and 29. Then said Jesus unto them, when you have uh, lifted up the Son of Man, so he said, look, I know you're going to kill me. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. He's telling them a prophecy. I do nothing of myself. But as the Father has taught me, I speak these things. And as he has sent me, it, as and... He that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always the things that please him. Can we say that? Can we go out and say we're a unified group of people only doing the things that please God? Because this is what we're to work toward. We're to work toward being unified. In John 10... We're told that we need to be one. John 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one, Christ said. He specifically says, we are one. One person? No, two individuals, but unified together, like in Acts, when they were there with one accord, in one place, one mind, serving God, miracles happened. That's what he expects. And 14.20 says, At that day you shall know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. That's what we want to be. We want God living and dwelling in us. Didn't I say before? The scripture says, we have God's Spirit dwelling in us. If we have God's Spirit dwelling in us, we have to be unified with God. We have to be equal. Christ said he was equal with God. Not that he was above God, but he was a God. And we're told that if we are unified, we will be equal with God because we will be God. We will marry Christ. In John 17, again back in John 17, 21 through 22, says that they all may be one. Christ speaking in a prayer prior to his death, talking to the Father, in prayer, so that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That's what God wants. He wants us to be one in him, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Well, if we become unified, will the world finally come to realize that God has taken us and sent us. That Christ was brought here by God's direction. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the goal that we're to be working toward. To be coming at one. Are we working at that? 
Is that our goal, to become unifying as God is one? Romans 15. I know I've got a lot of scriptures here. But they're pointing to the same factor. Romans 15, verses 5 and 6 says, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according as uh, according to Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel, Christ Jesus. God wants us to be like-minded, have the same mind. Just like God has the right mind, has the same mind, working that way. That's what the, the ultimate goal that he has, verse 6, that you may be one mind, one mouth, glorify God, even the Father, of our Lord. That's what we have to do. Have the same mind that whatever we say brings glory and honor to God. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, and 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 1, verse 10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Emmanuel, that you all speak the same thing. Remember I brought out earlier, I said if we're on the same book, in the same book, on the same page, we're going to speak the same thing. We speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you. But we have divisions. You can't say that the church of God is not divided. There's over 450 groups. Some, maybe a thousand or two, some maybe only one or two. And in each group, or in every group, are they all united underneath the same thoughts? I doubt it. Can we say that with ourselves here? Do we all have the same page that we're on? Or are we doing some other thing? Do we all speak the same thing? And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind in the same judgment. Well, we've got to come to that point. If we're going to glorify God, and we want to set up a community as a God-fearing community, we have to be going in the same direction, don't we? We have to be one that look down there and say, well, those people represent God. Oh, they'll probably hate us. Really hate us because we love God. It's not that they hate us. I mean, it goes back to the same thing with Paul Samuel. It's not that they hate us. They hate God. They don't want God to rule over them. But if we let God rule our lives and rule over us, and we're working together and unifying, the Lord ain't going to like us. They'll look down on us. They'll try to do away with us. First Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. Looking at unity. That's the way God looks at unity. For as one body, for as the body is one, the church one, the group one, on the same page, has many members, and all members of that body, of one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So, look at your body. You don't, you got fingers and hands, and you know, two hands, ten fingers, two ears, two eyes, one mouth. Sometimes our mouth takes over what our ears and eyes can't see. It tries to overpower all that. But we have feet and arms. So it, 
Our body is made up of a lot of members. And they're not all equal, are they? It's really tough to try to sign your name with your, with your toe, wouldn't it? Although I knew somebody that could do that. It's really tough to not have any legs. And we've seen many of the victims coming out of the war without legs. It's really tough to have parts of your body missing. And it's tough in the church to have bodies being separated, pulled apart. You know, if you hit your right hand, your whole body hurts, doesn't it? And that happens inside the church. The body, remember the body is, is hurt? Do we all hurt? If a body, a part of the body is uh, having a difficulty, does the whole body hurt? Some races of people feel that if you're down, what you do is you take them the rest of the way. I had a good friend that told me that from his race. If they go down, you take them all the way. And I hear that about other races. And yet God wants us to help and uphold each other and help each other. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Same spirit, we're baptized into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we bond or free, and have all been made to drink unto one spirit. So we drink in of God's spirit. We all have a responsibility. The whole bottom line is God wants unity. He taught us that in Genesis. We're going back to Genesis. What did he say back there in Genesis? Speaking as the Father said, let us make man in our image. So here there are two. And verse chapter 2, 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one. So all through the scriptures he's teaching unity. Marriage teaches unity. Ephesians 5, 25-33 says, Husbands, love your wives. I command the husbands, yes, to love your wives. Even as Christ loves the church. You think Christ is going to bicker and fight with his wife when they come and marry Christ? No. Christ loves his wife. As Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. Again, it's saying, you husbands, are you willing to give up your life for your wife? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word. Again, telling us that he sends people to wash and guide and correct his future bride. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church. So we're taught and trained so that we can present ourselves to God as a glorious group of people. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and without blemish. So ought a man to love his wife as his own body. Loving our wives as our own body. He that loves his wife loves himself. So if you beat on your wife, you really don't love yourself. Christ would not do that. 
or he spites us. He corrects us because he wants us to be a glorious bride. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, even as Christ, Emmanuel, loves the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bone. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall join them to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh again to becoming one. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He wants us to be unified. That's his whole intent, is to be unified, because that's what he wants. When you think back on the coming Passover and back on the last Passover, just prior to Christ being taken, beaten, thrown down, Christ says in Luke 22:42, Father, if you be willing, remove the cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Are we saying that? Are we willing to get up and say, not my will. I want to see unity. Not my will, but God's will. On God's timetable. But too often we want to do it in our own timetable. Christ, who knew he was going to die, said, I don't want to go through it. But hey, not my will. Not what I want to do. I want to do what you want, Father. I want to do it your way. So do we have the right then to go out there and say, I don't like the way God does things. I don't want to do it God's way. I want to do it my way. I don't believe who God sent. I don't want to follow the ones that God sent. Although, we look at the fruit, we look at past evidence and say, well, that stuff is pretty good. But I don't know. I don't see it that way. Are we, are we upset at the one God sent? Or are we upset at Christ? Are we upset at the men that God appoints? Or are we upset at the Father? That's something to take a look at, because as we come toward the Passover, it's very important that we recognize who's in charge. Who's the one that sent? Who's the one that called? Because when we read that back there, it says, God appoints. God directs. We are one body if we are willing to follow him. I think in that last two sermons it talks about the depth of the blood at the bottom of the stake. Here Christ, who all this I went through up here, showing how Christ and the Father at one. Christ said, I do of nothing of myself. Christ said, what the Father tells me I do. Christ went on to say, these are all the things that God gave me. He's hanging on the stake. Our Savior hanging on the stake and he cries out 
And he says, Father, help me. I want you to understand something right now. We go toward the Passover. Christ and God are one. They were unified from history before anything we can think of and beyond because it was on forever. Here's a being that was at one with God, always. They were unified. He's now hanging on his face. He's about to die. He cries out and says, My God, my God, where are you? The first time that Christ ever felt separated from God, hanging on that stake for me, for you. The first time in all his life that he was not unified with God. When we take the Passover, are we going to look out there and have that thoughts that Christ had? Where's God? Are we going to say, this is my Passover? Or can we say, why, why was Christ separated from God? He felt the loneliness of not having God with him at that moment in time. Can we grasp that in our daily life? That if we separate ourselves and go out here and do worldly things and do our own thoughts and our own actions, that we're actually separating ourselves from God? Christ never wanted that. He wanted God. He always wanted God with him. And in the reality and the example that he gives us, that when you are separated from your Savior, and from your God, it's a lonely thing to be. You don't want to be in that position. If we come in unity, in a unified group, then we're with God. But if we break ourselves away from where God is bringing His power and His might, we are separating ourselves from God. We have to take that as a little bit of thought ahead of time. Really think, am I separated from God? Will I separate myself? How deep was that blood at the bottom of that state? How deep, how difficult must that have been of someone who you were so close to separating? A man dies and leaves his wife as a widow and she feels the great hurt but that was nothing like what Christ suffered that day for you and for me, for mankind, for this world. And that what it says in John 3, 16. God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He separated himself from the unity of that he had with the Father, only to bring unity. We have to have that same mind that's in God. I don't have time to go through it. I have four points, four keys that leads to a lack of unity. 
And I've got seven keys, I think it is, that leads to unity. But brethren, as we go toward the Passover, we can either be unified, we can, as Darrell was reading right, right there, we look for the former and the latter rains all to come in that first month. If we're unified, they'll come. If we separate ourselves, then what's it going to take? God is going to have a family. He's going to have a group of people that are unified. He's going to have a group of people that love him, that will do it his way on his time schedule. Are we going to be part of that? Or are we going to be out there on our own? I've been there. When the church broke apart, my wife and I were on our own. It was a lonely place to be. But I didn't have the answers. And neither did you. But God had the answers. And sometimes he leads us down a path that takes us more than one step to get to the answers. To become unified. I'm going to, I'll hear I've got a couple minutes so I can go ahead and hit the four keys to bring disunity. And I won't go into them in the depth that I've got written here. You can. You can take time. That first key that leads to disunity is how good I am. Pride. You know. Arrogancy. I've got an education. You don't. I'm the best ditch digger than you are. I can remember going to a place getting some tires and a guy came out there and put me down because I had two different tires, two different size tires, and he was a tire changer. That's all he was. But he was better than me. How many times in the past have I remembered back years and years ago when they had interstate, the woman drove into a gas station and they thought, oh, she's the most dumb thing ever walked the planet because I am a gas pumper. So it's pride. Pride in my job. Pride in my family. Pride in my knowledge, pride in my lack of knowledge. I mean, we can go up there and say, I'm God's rich, or I'm God's poor. You know, still pride, isn't it? I'm the best there is, or the worst there is. So the first key or class that would put a person toward disunity, destruction of a unified group is I'm the best. There's nobody like me. And I'll tell you what, stay around me long enough, I'll show you. <laughs> show you how good I am. And you can go to scriptures like Psalms uh, 10.2. The wicked in his pride does uh, persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the, in the device that they, uh, that, ha, uh, that they have mingled. Uh, 10 verse 4. Psalm 10 4. And the wicked, the thoughts of pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all their thoughts. Pride. Pride brings disaster. Uh, 
Proverbs 10, uh, 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. So, you know, your pride, you know, people, I've seen people make mistakes, be put out of the church, and would never come back because I just couldn't handle it. You know, people might look down on me. They're so proud. They're so proud of, of the attitude they've been in. Chapter 13 of Proverbs. Only by pride comes contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Pride comes contention. I've seen that happen, and I'm sure you have too. People that talk about how great they are, it always brings contention. You just don't want to be around them. they got all the answers, and their pride will show it to you. So that first key that brings destruction of a unity of a group of people, brings disunity in the body, is pride. The second key goes along with first. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And it goes on through all Matthew 7, you know. Let's judge not. With your pride, you judge other people. Because I'm pretty good. You know, Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2 says, Judge not that you be not judged. So if you go out judging people, he says, you're going to be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you merit, it shall be measured again to you. So we set up our own standard. My standard is this. I'm going to, because you don't do things my way. That's the third, that's the third key toward disunity. That's setting up your own standards for others to live by. Well, I I'm pray and study ten hours a day, two hours a day, one hour a day, five minutes, whatever it is. I'm better than they are. So again, it's my pride and my judgment that brings down a unified group of people. In Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore you are inexcusable, man, whosoever you are that judge. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. So judging other people in the way they live their life destroys unity. Then my wife was talking about, I think a show on... Um, Oprah, when the one guy said, you got to stop looking at the faults, so you start wearing a band. And every time you have a mistake, you have to change your wrist. Well, for some of us, we find so many faults with people where we don't have time to stop. You know, if you know which side it is, that's not what you do. Because you judge people based on their faults, on their actions. And we set up a standard of living based on our thoughts. Well, I do things this way. And if you don't do it, then, you know, we set that standard. This is the standard that you must live by. Uh, I read where it's God sets the standard. Not me, not you. God sets those standards. And when we go out and set standards for other people to live by, we only cause contention and we cause a disruption in unity. But that's 
needs to be done. Romans 14, verse 21. It is good neither to eat flesh nor drink wine, nor anything whereby a brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So if our standards cause somebody else to fall away, what do we do? We bring unity? Well, Paul said, I would never do anything that would cause somebody to stumble. Because I want to see unity. Paul did. That's what we've got to do. We've got to cause unity. So he would never do anything that would cause so... What about us? Is my standard so high? You can't live by my standard, so I'm going to rub it in your nose. You're going to do it my way. Well, what if it makes somebody stumble? Well, I, I'm so learned and understand all these scriptures and I can just be so much a tyrant and shove it down your throat and somebody feels, well, it's not worthwhile being around here anymore. I'm going to go. Did that bring unity or disaster? So the third thing we have to be very careful on, if we're going to build a unified force, we certainly want to be full of pride. Moses had no pride. He was humble. Isaiah 66, 2. Unto this person I look, who is proud and arrogant and humble, unto this person I look, to him that is humble and contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Paul's word was he would never offend anybody. Do we tremble at that? Or we pass it by? And there's a lot of scriptures you could go research it because it's important that we don't set our standard for other people to live by. God sets the standard. God does the calling. God puts who wants in charge. All these are God's standards. So we've got to go by what God's standards are. The fourth has been covered and covered and covered and covered. And it's sometimes too late and we, we just kind of rub it in the ground, but maybe because we don't really grasp it and why God hates this. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 19, 16 through 19. One of the biggest things that causes this unity it causes a group of people to fall apart. He says in chapter 6, verse 16, These six things does God hate. Yes, even, uh, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, what their pride. A lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. And how many people have died spiritually? These people that caused this death were shedding innocent blood. The heart that deceives wicked imaginations, thinking of the things that are not right, wickedly ways of pulling people down, feet that are swift to run to mischief, those people that are swift to run to hear gossip, swift to hear what, oh, Nelson does these things, or Darrell's doing this, or Gordon's doing that, or, or well, are we swift? We want to hear this, man. Listen, you got to get the straight skinny on this. Swift to run the mission. A false witness that speaks lies. Stretching the truth. Stretching the truth. Just telling a lie. And he that sows discord among the brethren. 
Why did God hate discord? Why does God really hate discord? The Garden of Eden. God wanted unity. He was there. He wanted to speak and teach and train Adam and Eve. Along comes the snake. Hey, let me tell you the full story here. God's not telling you the truth. He didn't really fill you in on everything. You see, that tree that he tells you not to eat of, it would really make you wise. What did that do? It caused a disunity between God, Christ, and Adam and Eve. Didn't it? Here was two beings he created. They had the greatest opportunity of everything. And right away, what happened? Well, you know, God, that's that woman, her fault. You know, she's the one led me astray. The woman says, hey, but it's not my fault. You, you created that snake. It's the one that actually led me astray. Or you made the tree of good and evil. So, actually, God, it's your fault. So, the, the disunity came in because of discord. Why does God hate discord? Because one angelic being, the greatest, beautiful, most talented being that he created, took one-third of the creation and led them contrary to God. Does God hate discord? Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he just straighten it up? No. He hates it because it brings destruction. One-third of the angels are doomed for nothing. God hates discord. Of all the things that brings disunity, pride, arrogant thoughts, how great I am, judging each other based on our own abilities, our own thoughts, our own knowledge, setting up a standard that people can't live by, whether you can or not, will make any difference. But they've got to learn to live by my standards and causing discord, going around the back of those that God sent to teach us. Just like Korah, Jason, and Abiram, and many others have suffered the penalty of discord. Adam and Eve lost their home, lost peace and harmony, watched their children kill each other. Does God want unity or discord? Think on this as we go through Passover. Four things that can bring a nation down, our nation is being brought down. A church can be brought down. A group can be brought down. A family can be brought down. All the way down into the family. As we go toward the Passover, we want to be unified. They're all brought out. We want to see the former and the latter reigns all brought out at one time. Is it going to happen this year? The only way it will is we follow God's timetable. God's plan that we 
work on discord. We work on setting somebody else to follow our standard. We work on judging each other. We work on you know, not judging each other, not setting our standards up and not causing discord and not being some proud, vain, arrogant human being who is not out here saying, I don't do it my way. As the Father teaches, I do. Where do you stand? So maybe next time I get to speak, I'll show you the seven steps toward unity. <laughs>